Hello, 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 and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unprecedented homelands of the Mohegan people who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm your host, H. Bosch Jr. And I'm Sina Bazilahiki. Today on Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with an update from NYPIRG on the all-electric building campaign with Mark Dunley. Then Willie Terry takes us to the Latinx Heritage Month cultural celebration. Later on, the historic Frederick Allen Elks Lodge is holding their annual jazz barbecue, and Kendall Hicks, the exalted ruler, joins us to tell us more. After that, Chris Hedges speaks with Andrea Cunliffe ahead of his talk at the Sanctuary, coming up on Friday, 21st at 7 p.m., about his latest book, The Greatest Evil is War. Finally, Raina Lipsitz joins us to talk about her book, The Rise of of a New Left, How Young Radicals Are Shaping the Future of American Politics, and her upcoming talk at the James Connolly Social Club on October 22nd, But first, here are the headlines. Okay. The Times Union reports that about 100 students at the Gilderland High School walked out on Tuesday to draw attention to the racist school climate, a problem the school administrators admit they have known about for years. Black students report being targets of racial slurs in the hallways. Library books about black history have been vandalized with racial epithets, and on Friday, when students were encouraged to wear black to show school spirit at a football game, two students arrived with their faces painted black. One of the largest utility worker unions in the country is trying to organize 135 wind turbine workers at GE Renewable Energy. The move comes after a news report that GE is looking to cut 20% of the onshore wind division. The Gazette reports that the Schenectady County Democratic Committee filed a state ethics complaint Tuesday against the Kennedy Project, an anonymous operation on social media attacking state Senate candidate Michelle Osterlich, a Democrat from Niskayuna running against Republican Jim Tedesco. The group is accused of not disclosing campaign information, including expenses while appearing to function as an unregistered political entity. The city of Troy has distributed 90000 uh, yeah, $90,000 $90, of federal COVID relief funds to various youth sport groups to help with equipment and future expenses. And that's it for the headlines. That 90 always gets me from Cena. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in the Troy and surrounding capital regions through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, you can go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call us at 518-272-2390. Okay. Climate groups are mobilizing against a push by the staff of the Climate Action 
Council to move the proposed date for a ban on gas in many new buildings by the year of 2025. Earlier this year, the Assembly blocked an action on the bill at the last moment due to the opposition of gas companies and unions representing gas workers. Ann Rabe of Nyberg discusses with Mark Dunley. We're speaking with M. Rabe, who is the Environmental Policy Director for Nyberg, the New York Public Interest Research Group, does a lot of work on, on climate. Um, one of the first issues we wanted to discuss with Ann is that recently the staff um, for the Climate Action Council as they begin to develop the plan uh, for how the state will deal with climate uh, has recommended that they actually push back the initial proposed deadline to convert uh, or to stop having new buildings in New York uh, use gas uh, by a year. And that's something that's not going over very well with the climate community. So, Anne, can you bring us up to speed on this issue? Sure. Um, it's basically um, a surprise to all of us that the Climate Action Council would even consider this, this what we call basically a rollback um, in terms of electrifying buildings. Um, buildings in New York State are the, the largest greenhouse gas emitter, 32% of our greenhouse gas emissions. And so um, the Climate Action Council in draft scoping plan in terms of how to implement the Climate Act um, and reach the 2030 and 2050 goals to greatly reduce greenhouse gas emissions um, recommended in the past that as of 2024, all buildings seven floors and under should be all electric. So that means any any person who's building a house, any developer building, you know, a business um, office building would be required to go all electric and no more gas. Now, I understand that, uh, you know, New York City uh, did recently pass that. And it was something, though, a little bit slower timeline that Governor Hochul had recommended in her budget last year. But after months and the guests, that bill actually fell off uh, the table in the closing days of the legislative session. What, what's been the holdup with the legislature, especially since this is the one thing that the Climate Action Council last year, you know, really requested that the legislature take action on? Yeah, it's inexplicable why the, why especially the assembly, who would not even uh, push the bill through committee, um, the Energy Committee, it's, it's really kind of mind-boggling that both the assembly and the Senate ignored the Climate Action Council's recommendation to pass the All-Electric Building Act, uh, in 2022 so that it can be implemented and start uh, as of 2024 in terms of um, all new buildings would be all electric seven floors or under. The New York City law it has exactly that same timetable. And um, then for larger buildings, it's um, 2027. The governor had a one sentence um, bill in her budget, um, which said basically go all electric by 2027. So there was a three-year delay under the governor's proposal. Uh, it didn't go anywhere. She took it off the table during the budget negotiations. And so, you know, over 220 organizations are supporting the All Electric Building Act, which is a, a legislation that we will be reintroduced for the next session. Um, 
but the Climate Action Council's recommendations, what, what was dis deeply disturbing, as you mentioned, is that the um, state agency staff who work for the Climate Action Council, which is 22 members in this council, um, they recommended last Thursday, last week, that, um, that it should be moved to 2025, so a one-year delay, and that instead of seven floors or under, it should only be cover three floors or under in the 2025 timetable. So basically, it's a delay and it's a weakening in terms of the scope of buildings. Um, and then they, they also pushed um, 2027 for the large buildings over to 2028, um, and that's for buildings now over three floors. So it, it's, it's weakening uh, the scope of the buildings and it's, it's delaying, well, we can't delay, climate can't wait. It's delaying having buildings be electrified. Now, a lot of the opposition, of course, has come from the, um, you know, the fossil fuel industry, particularly natural gas, but it's also come from some of the unions who represent gas workers. And one of the arguments they make is that uh, you certainly you could use uh, geothermal, which is a little bit more expensive up front. Um, but there have been arguing that the uh, air heat pumps, which a lot of people have begun to install, including myself, just do not work in upstate New York where it's too cold. How would you respond to that? That's not true. The heat pumps are used throughout New York State. They're used in Norway. They're used in the Arctic. I mean, heat pumps work in cold climates. That's why they're called heat pumps. <laughs> it's misinformation. There's been a big campaign, as you mentioned, by National Grid and many utilities. And, of course, their, their unions um, also um, toting the line, which is that's untrue. That's untrue. We can implement this bill today. Now, one of the, the big uh, complaints from the climate movement is that the state of New York has really refused to put uh, any significant money um, into play in the budget or elsewise in order to help pay for the um, you know, transition to 100% renewable energy, including helping you know, low and moderate income people you know, pay for things like heat pumps. So the federal government did just do um, some of that. And, you know, we, we've had you on before to talk about this, uh, you know, a proposal for the uh, Climate Superfund Act. Uh, can you briefly give us, you know, an overview of that and, and what's the current uh, discussions with legislative leaders and the governor's people about, uh, you know, doing this in next year's budget? Well, we're hopeful that um, the governor is seriously considering including the Climate Superfund in her proposed executive budget. Um, we have not yet met with her staff, um, but we've had conversations in the past and they appeared interested. Um, it, it, it's a it's a win-win proposal. Um, it would, would generate $3 billion a year um, by placing a fee on the past greenhouse emissions from the largest oil um, companies. And it, we're working to get a lot more support for the bill. Um, and we were basically um, working with New York Renews, which has 320 organizations in this coalition, and they've included it as part of their budget climate package. So on November 16th, there's going to be a multi-city campaign launch, including a press conference in Albany, um, to um, launch a campaign to really push for the Climate Superfund bill and pass it to law next session. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned New York Renews, which, um, you know, most people give a lot of the credit for passing the uh, you know, state's new climate law three years ago, the CLCPA. I mean, they have been pushing what, what 
people would call a carbon tax, they call, you know, Pluto penalties pay. That would have raised significantly more money a year, about $10 billion. But, you know, it was not going anywhere um, uh, in, in the legislature. And I, so it's interesting that they have now, you know, and other groups have started to support, you know, this proposal. But as far as I know, the state climate action plan hasn't really come up with any concrete proposal as to how they recommend that the state pay for, you know, um, dealing with climate. Is that still the situation? Well, there's rumors that they're talking about a carbon tax, but yeah, that's still the situation. There's nothing in their scoping plan um, that I'm aware of um, that talks about how we're going to raise the needed funding so we can really invest in renewable energy. And I understand some of the groups may be showing up at the next meeting of the Climate Action Council uh, to push them at least on the um, issue of, you know, not rolling back or stepping back on their commitment as to a timeline to convert to all electric buildings for new buildings? Yes, there will be um, people at the New York City and the Albany um, meeting next Tuesday. October 25th at two o'clock um, when the Climate Action Council meets and they will be there to protest with signs um, the, the proposal by the staff to delay and weaken the building electrification recommendation. And we're going to be um, also releasing a, a sign-on letter. So far, 56 organizations have signed on. We're trying to get a lot more. So yes, anyone in the Albany area, if you, if you have time on Tuesday, October 25th, it would be great if you could show up at the nice Serta building on Washington Avenue. Nice Serta on Washington Avenue. So that's a, I believe that's across from Crossgates or up in that area. Um, uh, so we've been talking with Ann Rabe, uh, Environmental Policy Director of the New York Public Interest Research Group, NYPERG. If, Ann, if people want more information uh, about NYPERG or your climate agenda, uh, get a webpage. Uh, NYPERG.org. And um, or they can contact me at 518-560-1849. Thanks. Thank you very much. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. All right. We have more coverage on the electrifying of buildings or going all electric. We also recently were talking about an event with a future of small cities. You can find more on the push to go electric on our website, mediasanctuary.org. Okay, coming up next, roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry attended Latinx Heritage Month cultural celebration at Hudson Valley Community College. The HVV, HVCC Student Senate hosted the Latinx celebration at the Campus Center September 15th to October 15th, Latinx History Month. Take it away, Mr. Terry. Thank you. 
Yeah, this is Willie Terry, your Roman labor correspondent. And I'm here at Huston Valley Community College where they're having a Latinx heritage program. Uh, as you know, September 15th through October the 15th was Latinx History Month. And uh, today they are celebrating their month with food and music of Latinx heritage. And uh, they have a band here, I mean a group, group here, who are entertaining the students with music. And I have as my guest the leader of that musical group that just entertained the student, and his name is? Jorge Gomez. Jorge Gomez, how you doing? I'm great, how are you? So, uh, Gomez, just tell me a little bit about your band. I know, you know, uh, you just entertain the students, uh, giving them some good music. So yeah. tell me a little bit about your band, how, how y'all came together. Yes, well, we started band like three years ago. There is a, it's a mix between Puerto Rico and Cuba. Okay. So mostly we play, you know, music from Puerto Rico and Cuba, like mm-hmm. salsa, uh, merengue, right. uh, bolero, cha-cha-cha, danzón. So the band is, uh, we have a full player, we have a conga player, piano, and singer. Okay, well give me the name, who are, who are they? Okay, <laughs> we have uh, Richard Alvarez on flute, on flute? yeah, um, Walter Rodriguez on singer, uh, my name is Jorge Gomez, and William Rodriguez on conga. Oh, on conga. Yeah. Okay, and how long y'all been together? Three years, yeah. Three, three years? Yeah, we started the band in Saratoga Spring. Uh-huh. Oh, Saratoga, so yeah. you... Are from the capital region mostly. Yeah, yes, yes. Oh, they live all around: Schenectady, Troy, uh, Albany, and Saratoga Spring. So, what are some of the other benches? Have you played at other colleges or some of the other? Benches? We play all around the college and also in Saratoga and the racetrack, mm-hmm. uh, Putnam Place, all all uh, discotheque, bar, a casino. That's how we do it. <laughs> now you know, like I just say, October the fifteenth through us. I mean, September 15th to October 15th is Latinx History Month, you know, and I just want to ask you, how important is it that uh, we celebrate yeah. this month? Well, the Hispanic heritage. For us, it's very important because it's, we are like ambassador of our country. We bring the culture, not only the music, the music, the food, the energy, the happiness, and, and it's very important for us that people understand and the, the, the culture, you know? We Spanish speakers, so dancing, everything around our culture is good for people to know. So uh, uh, here at the college, you know, uh, you know, we have a, a lot of uh, Spanish-speaking students. Mm-hmm. And um, how important do you think it's for them to notice information? It, they, they have to be feel like home when you see and hear someone speaking your language and playing your music. Right. So it's good for them to have a little of their culture in the college, into the college. So it's very good for them. I, I feel the same. Uh, most, I play in another band called Tiempo Libre, and most of the time that we travel outside the country, for example, China or England or, or Italy, we always looking for a place to remember us, our country. So we go to the Latino restaurant, like Dominican, Puerto Rican, Cuban. You know the food is gonna be the the way you like it, and the music, of course. You always looking for that. So right now, you we bring that to the college for them. Right. Okay. So they have food here today. You know. <laughs> so what do you well, think of that? They have fun. They have fun. The this food. is the second time that we do this. Uh-huh. I'm saying the food. Ah, oh, the food that was fantastic. Yeah. That's a little of everything. They have pupusa, they have uh, 
uh, tacos, they have rice, rice and beans. Mm -hmm. So it's a mix of all the culture, all Latino culture. Yeah. So tell me uh, some of the music that you play. What, what are some of the music that you play? Well, we play El Raton, that's from Puerto Rico. We play El Cuarto de Tula uh, from Cuba. We play Boleros from Mexico. Uh, it's a mix of all the Latino speaker culture. That's what we did. Now you you are from Cuba. Cuba. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, and Cuba. Uh, oh, it was a big hurricane in Cuba. Yeah, yeah. And you have you have family over there? No, I don't have family there. But I have a lot of family in Miami. That oh, the hurricane go through that place too. Oh, Miami had a problem. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Huge Florida. Florida, right. Yeah. So, uh, uh, have you been in touch with them? Yeah, I just came from there. Oh, you just came? Yeah, two days ago, I was in Miami. It's, it's real bad. Yeah, well, mostly in the West Coast. Oh, yeah. Miami's fine. The West Coast is where the problem is. The West Coast. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, um, we have a uh, Jose Jorge Jorge Gomez. Yeah. You know, and uh, like I said, you play some good music for the students. So what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna end this interview, you know, not hold you long, uh -huh. and I'm gonna play a, a little bit of your music oh, to great. my audience great, and let great. them hear that. Perfect. And if someone wants to get in touch with you about uh -huh. doing something, how do they get in touch with you? They can go to my way, uh, to my email, is jordigomez at yahoo.com. Mm -hmm. Or you can go to Facebook, we have a, uh, a part there that's called Alta Habana Music. So you can go there and see all the concerts that we're going to have, when, where. Okay. So you hear that. Uh, so if you want some good Latin music, <laughs> I just gave you a good contact to get in touch with somebody if you have to have some, want some Latin music played at one of your events. And I want to thank you. Thank you this. so much. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Correspondent Willie Terry's coverage of the Latinx Heritage Month cultural celebration at Hudson Valley Community College. For those of you just tuning All right. in. Yep. I'm your host, H. Bosch Jr., for those of you just tuning in. Sina Bazil Hickey. And you are listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy. 
W-O-O-G-L-P 92.7 FM Troy, W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady, and W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. And if you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Great, great. And I love that last interview. Love the Latin music. Um, I just want to take a moment before we go to our next segment to acknowledge um, my um, family member in Detroit, uh, Tony Riddle, and my good friend right here in Albany, uh, William Jones. Both had some major, major surgeries, and I just want to wish them well and praying for a speedy and healthy recovery and God's blessings. And we look forward to seeing both of you back on your feet real soon. And um, William, we expect you to come in uh, when you're healthy and ready to come on the show and talk about your experience, your health challenge, and um, how the um, benefits of early detection basically save your life. Um, I know you have a story to tell, and it's going to really touch a lot of people and hopefully inspire them for early detection. So um, like I said earlier today, uh, God's not done with you. You've still got a long way to go and a lot of lives to touch. So um, get well soon, take your time, rest up, and um, God's blessings. All right, all right. Here we go. Our next segment of the Triple E's. We have um, friend of the show, Mr. Kendall Hicks, the exalted ruler of the Frederick Allen Lodge in Saratoga Springs. He's going to come on and talk to us about this historic event that's happening at the uh, Lodge this coming Sunday and all the wonderful things that he's doing in the community and uh, the way that he's making a difference. So here we go. Uh, Kendall? All right. He's connecting. He's connecting. All right. The joys of live TV. Or not TV, <laughs> TV. radio. Well, We're on the radio. Yeah, well, yeah, Hello, that too. Hello, welcome. Yes. There he is. <laughs> welcome to this show. Hey, how you Thank doing? How you doing? I'm doing well. How about yourselves? Good, good. Mr. Difference Maker. Okay. And... um. Hard-working black man like me and friend of the show. How are you? Yeah, returning. Thank you so much for coming back. Blessed to be had. Okay, so um, let me just start out here then. Um, and I love the title, Exaltic Ruler. Tell me, um, for a lot of people who are listening, what does an exaltic ruler do in your day-to-day -day responsibilities before we go yeah. further into the other stuff? Exalted ruler does a lot. Um, I coined the phrase exhausted ruler because uh, we just stay very busy. Um, but typically the exalted ruler conducts the business of the lodge and makes sure that uh, the wishes of the members are, are carried out. So I am just a figurehead. Uh, I work for the body uh, and the community. So all I do is what our members and our community would like for me to do. Okay, okay, great, great. So um, what have you been up to lately in terms of um, exalter ruler responsibilities pertaining to the lodge? Well, lately, uh, the lodge is really in a building uh, phase where we are trying to recover from 
you know, uh, year, years of, of struggling through uh, low membership and, and finances and, you know, building issues. Uh, and then coming uh, out of COVID, uh, we've been very, very busy trying to, uh, you know, maintain, just trying to maintain. We had a GoFundMe campaign last year this time, um, and it really showed how our community uh, stepped up and supported us, and they understand uh, our plight, they understand why we're here, and they understand the need uh, and importance for us to maintain the history and culture of this lodge here in Saratoga, in this community. Okay, so let's talk about the lodge um, a little bit. Um, tell me and my listeners how you have managed to, like you just said, bring the lodge back from the brink of bankruptcy, so to speak, to uh, increase its membership and um, you know financial standing and all the other good things in the community and where it's at now and where do you hope to see it go in the future? Absolutely. Well, honestly, we, we have just been staying busy um you know we've been, been very busy showing our community um you know that we're here to stay we've been we've been blessed by giving and and i am a true believer that if you give uh you will definitely get uh you know what you deserve in return so yes we indeed yes indeed for our community when other institutions had their doors closed there was no uh, open venue for people to gather. Um, we maintained, we kept our doors open as safely as we could. We stayed busy. We kept our calendar full. Um, we had event after event after event showing the community that this is a safe space for you to gather and, and enjoy one another's company. Um, but more importantly, we shared our story openly and honestly with our community and, and been very open about our struggles. Um, and our community stepped up. Saratoga stepped up, and I'm proud to say so. Uh, they've circled their arms around us and put a blanket of blessing around us. And, and, and they gave. They gave and they donated. Um, and this year's event, the, the Jazz Barbecue for this year, is an opportunity to show our community what their hard work and support has done for us. Um, we had construction done over the, over the last year. Uh, we have a beautiful back balcony, uh, egress balcony. Uh, that uh, reaches down to the stairs that make it safe for us, reaches down to the ground that make it safe for us to use the room. Uh, the importance of that, uh, not only just being a uh, code violation and a safety issue, the room that it's attached to is a room that we use for our youth. And right now there's a, uh, a counselor there uh, counseling youth through the arts. You know, in, in our days of coming out of COVID, young people just struggle with expressing themselves and understanding what has happened to them. Um, and the only way, well, one of the ways that we're able to reach them is give them uh, opportunity to express themselves through the arts. And this is uh, helping our young people uh, come out of depression, come out of, you know, uh, you know, all kinds of psychological issues that they know, no one knows how to handle, not to mention our young people. So we're helping them. Uh, we are trying to expand that program so look forward to uh, more information about that as we reach out to the community for more support in that endeavor. But uh, we surely want to help our youth uh, come out of this uh, very depressive state of time, um, you know, on top. Okay, great, great. Excellent answer. So let me ask you, if I walked up to you on the street tomorrow, Kendall, and asked you, um, why would I want to be a member of the Lodge and how would this benefit my life? Well, that's a very good question because 
this is a fraternal. That's what I do. Excuse me. I ask good questions. <laughs> Go right ahead. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You, you know, this this lodge, this organization is not for everyone. This is a fraternal organization that it's it's its mission is to support its members and the community. So if you're a person that have a helping people spirit and you like to gather and uh, collaborate and work together with others to get things done in your community, to make things better for others, then this is the place for you. There's not many places like this place. This place is rich in culture. It's rich in spirit. It's rich in good people, good music, good food. And all the time, we're always looking uh, for people like yourself to come in and collaborate with us, to join arms with us and help serve our members in our community. Okay. So um, in closing, uh, we have a few more minutes left. Let's take some time to talk about this historical event happening at the Frederick Allen Lodge uh, this Sunday in Saratoga Springs. Absolutely. Uh, I'm very excited about it. Um, you know, it's been a long time coming because we really want to showcase to our community what their love and support has done for us. Um, we always have the most delicious barbecue uh, food. Uh, this year, it's sponsored again uh, by Dizzy Chicken. Uh, the owner, Justin, has just been so helpful uh, with us. Uh, so we have uh, barbecue ribs and chicken Goodness and uh, mac macaroni and cheese and collard greens, if you will. Stop, stop. Uh, so Finger looking good. good. I hear it's so good, you'll walk to work and slap your boss. Uh-oh, watch out. <laughs> that good. Go ahead, though, anyway. But also we have, uh, you know, we always have good food and good music. We have an ensemble from Albany um, called Legacy. These gentlemen grew up in the church. Mm. Um, so they have a whole that you, you want to hear. They have an R&B flair, uh, you know, but they are most humble and, and you know, God-serving individuals uh, that gives you some beautiful jazz music. So we're going to be blessed with them also. Um, and we, we have, you know, all kinds of other entertainment as well as individuals that you don't want to miss um, rubbing shoulders with. Our mayor, Mayor, um, uh, mayor Kim, will be here. Um, uh, most of our uh, local politicians will be here. Carrie mm -hmm. Warner will be here. Mm -hmm. um, we just reached out and invited them all because they've all have been very instrumental Great. in helping this grow. Uh, so you so know, let me brothers, end because we're running out of time. Tell people yes. how they get a, can get in contact with you for this event. Give out some numbers, uh, some websites, etc. You can go right to our Frederick Allen Lodge webpage. It's Frederick Allen Lodge number 609 on the Facebook page or the webpage and you can get more information about this event. You can uh, purchase tickets online, um, or you can call me directly. My number is 845-401-1794. Barbecue so much, rib special. <laughs> Add that to right. it, right? Um, Absolutely. So listen, I just want to end by saying, uh, brother, I appreciate what you have done. I appreciate what you're doing, and I appreciate what you will continue to do. You are a friend of the show. And you are making so many things happen and truly, truly changing people's lives the right way. So uh, continue success and God bless you. And may heaven continue to smile upon you. Thank you so much. Thanks right. for your support. Look forward to seeing you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. And next up, we have Pulitzer Prize winner and war correspondent Chris Hedges. He's coming to the sanctuary on Friday, October 21st, and he's returning. He's been here many times before. Those videos are available on our YouTube channel. Absolutely. And one of the good things about Chris is, Chris 
is I always tell people, hedge your bet. Make sure you show up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And he spoke with Andrea Cunliffe about his latest book, The Greatest Evil is War. Not a funny topic. (laughs) No, not at all. And they also talked about the war in Ukraine, (sighs) personal encounters with the victims of war, the meaning of truth in journalism, and his years in Central America and the Middle East and Eastern Europe. Serious topics, but it will be a wonderful night. Absolutely. Great fellowship. And that's what's important. Absolutely. Yes. So we have Pulitzer Prize winner, war correspondent Chris Hedges. And he returns to the sanctuary for independent media on the subject of his latest book titled, The Greatest Evil is War. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. You're no stranger to the sanctuary. You've stopped by with your book, Our Class, Trauma and Transformation in the American Prison. But that's another story. After some time, you've written another book about war. Well, the war in Ukraine, with the same kind of national euphoria for industrial slaughter. I was in Eastern Europe in 1989, and I covered the revolutions and the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I was acutely aware of the promises that were made by German foreign minister, Hans Dietrich Genscher, uh, James Baker, who was then Secretary of State, Margaret Thatcher to Gorbachev, not to expand NATO beyond the borders of a unified Germany, uh, much less station NATO troops in Eastern and Central Europe. This was a tragic decision. Uh, Gorbachev wanted to create uh, both a security and economic alliance with Europe and the United States, as did Yeltsin, as in the early years did Putin. Uh, So all of this was foreseeable, as George Kennan and others had pointed out. Uh, Kennan, the great uh, Soviet specialist, called it the greatest blunder in post-Cold War history. Uh, And so it was kind of chronicle of a war foretold. It doesn't excuse, of course, what Russia did in the invasion of Ukraine as preemptive war. It's a war crime. It should have never happened. And the massive infusion of uh, weapons systems and and assistance into Ukraine, the United States alone has given $50 billion. I mean, the budget of the State Department is only $60 billion, to put it in kind of perspective, uh, means that Zelensky has no incentive at all to negotiate and the country will just be devastated. Uh, Even the New York Times editorial on the war said the idea that there won't have to be a negotiated peace and certainly in the areas controlled by ethnic Russians, a kind of land for peace deal is unrealistic. And so we get this proxy war to degrade Russia. The Ukrainians will bleed rivers of blood. So that was really it. And I had resisted I didn't want to do another book on war. I, war is a force that gives us meaning. It had been my own reflections on the culture of war. It was a, an extremely painful and difficult book to write, but City Lights and Seven Stories Press kept pushing me. I had written some columns on Ukraine that they thought were important, uh, and I went back and looked over the last 20 years. And In fact, I'd written quite a bit on war, not my own experiences in war, but really seeking out those who are tossed aside as the kind of human detritus of war, the paraplegic Thomas Young. I went out to Kansas City after he announced that he was going to uncouple his feeding tube uh, and commit suicide. and uh, He couldn't hold a pen. He dictated his last letter to Bush and Cheney, very powerful, and 
uh, a woman who worked in the mortuary unit, a Marine. So I, I picked out all those aspects of war that I knew very well, but they're not my stories, unlike Wars of Force that Exist, meaning they're the stories of others. You really go in for the individual, the people, the human beings that are involved in war and the repercussions of what happens to the individual. It's almost all reported. It's all contemporary. So it's, you know, for instance, the father of a son, twenty his 20-year-old son was a Marine and was killed in Iraq. Uh, it's, it's all stories uh, that expose the reality of, of war. Uh, a chapter called Orphans. I mean, it's kind of stripped down, the, the act of killing orphans uh, when the bodies come home. And the, the chapter on orphans is with a survivor from Auschwitz. Uh, she was in Auschwitz when she was 14, and her entire family was killed, and she's left alone as a 14-year-old girl at the end of the war. So uh, it, it, it's about what war does to societies and individuals, but told through these accounts. Amazing. Your background basically is minister. Or well, pastor. my background is a new, newspaper reporter. I was a newspaper sure, reporter. Sure, sure. But I mean, I, that certainly had to have some influence on how you perceive no, it, it what's going influence. on and how you report. Well, it has an influence on how I perceive the world. I mean, I graduated from Harvard Divinity School, but as soon as I graduated, I went to El Salvador and started as a freelance reporter and then ended up working for the New York Times overseas. But I was overseas for 20 years. So my formation is more out of the world of journalism than the clergy, although I, I certainly have that background. But what possessed you to start journalism? What made you feel that the words were important for you to interpret well, was, what's going I was on? Well, because I was a writer by nature. So I published my first piece when I was 12 and as History of my father's church. I published in the Christian Science Monitor when I was in college, but I had a hard time reconciling the social activism of my father, a World War II vet who uh, was very involved in the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement and the gay rights movement, uh, which the church did not take well. But his my uncle, his brother, was gay, so I, I didn't. Uh, buy into the neutrality and objectivity, certainly not about injustice, not about human suffering. And my second year at Harvard Divinity School, I uh, developed a friendship with a guy named Robert Cox, who had been the editor of the Buenos Aires Herald during the dirty war in Argentina, when the Argentine military junta disappeared 30,000 of its own citizens. And he had printed the only newspaper in Argentina to do it, printed the names of the desaparecidos on the front page. And that was a kind of wake-up call of the importance of journalism. And uh, so I decided to go to El Salvador. At the time, the death squads were killing between 700 and 1,000 people a month, backed by the Reagan administration, and use my writing, as James Baldwin says, like a weapon to amplify the suffering of those James Cone called the crucified of the earth, to give them a voice, and and that's what I always have done. So I, I, my whole career was, I was in the Middle East. I covered the war in Yugoslavia. I was based in Sarajevo. So. I suppose the Middle East was festering before you decided to learn the Arabic language. Was that in preparation? Did you understand that you may be going there? Did you feel there was no, no? I, I covered the war in the wars in Guatemala, Nicaragua, and El Salvador for five years. I never wanted to leave Latin America. I'm bilingual in Spanish. I wanted to go to South America, and my paper 
I was working for the Dallas Morning News at the time. They didn't want to open a bureau in South America. They offered me London or Jerusalem, and I didn't want to go to London. Uh, I love London, but I didn't want to be a reporter there. And so I accepted Jerusalem with a caveat that I could take a year off and study Arabic because I don't know right. covering countries where I don't speak the language. You found yourself working for the Times at the time? No, I, uh, 1988 to 1990, I worked for the Dallas Morning News as the Middle East Bureau Chief. And then in 1990, I was hired by the New York Times. You've seen so many ugly things of war. It had to have had a huge effect on you. I mean, not only yeah, as course. a journalist, how can you be objective and uh, see something like that and not have it affect you? Of course, of course. I think all war reporters carry trauma that's often very similar to combat veterans or victims. Of, yeah. Can you be objective under a situation like that? No, I'm not. I wasn't objective about. I mean, that's no. ridiculous. If you're yeah. objective, you know that means somehow you don't have a heart. Uh, how can you not be? outraged by the murder of children, which the Israelis carry out, uh, or Sarajevo. I mean, I think 2,000 children died finally in that siege, and many of them shot by snipers. So, I mean, how can you look at the body of a child and somehow not feel outrage and and, uh, tremendous sadness? That doesn't, there's a difference. I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with those feelings. What's wrong is manipulating or not telling the truth. So it's it's uh, and, and that's what journalists do. They manipulate facts. So I can take facts and uh, uh, use them to form a story that gives any impression. And if, I'm, if I want to placate the powerful, I can use those facts to placate the powerful. But if you're a good reporter, then your goal is to take those facts or marshal those facts in order to tell the truth. And sometimes telling the truth, especially if you're up against the Israel lobby, jeopardizes your career. Um, and uh, and so this kind of faux objectivity, faux neutrality, uh, is really just a cover often for obscuring the truth. This has been Andrea Kunler for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine speaking with Pulitzer Prize winner, war correspondent Chris Hedges, on the subject of his latest book, The Greatest Evil is War. For those of you who can't make it in person to talk, we'll broadcast and stream, we'll be broadcasting this and streaming it on WOOC after this program on Friday evening. The video recording of the talk will be available in the coming weeks after the event. Great. Yes. And next, we are joined by a guest to close out tonight's show. We're joined by Raina Lipsitz, who will join, who has written the book, The Rise of the New Left, How Young Radicals Are Shaping the Future of American Politics. And this weekend, there's the upcoming talk at James Connolly Social Club on October 22nd. So welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Welcome, Raina. <laughs> welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for uh, coming on. Yeah, thank you for being here. Can we start? Could you give us a general summary of your book before we dive into it? Sure. Um, I wanted to write the book because I'd been interviewing lots of new progressive candidates, uh, wanted to paint a more nuanced portrait of who these energized young people were, where they were coming from. I also wanted to talk to folks on the ground and not just 
political celebrities themselves, although the book does have interviews that I did with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and people who are bigger names. But it really, um, one thing I really wanted to do was get the voices of a lot of people doing the work on the ground. Okay, uh, let me uh, chime in, uh, Raina. Um, before we go, go any further, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, where you were born and raised at. Okay. I was born and raised in Buffalo, New York. Oh, um, I was just there yesterday. A, a lot of family. Oh, you were? Yes, okay. yes. What, what brought you there? Um, I have um, a business interest that takes me up there once a week into Hamilton, Ontario, okay. Canada. Yeah, right across nice. the border. So go ahead. I'm sorry for yes. interrupting. Mm -hmm. No, I just, uh, I love Buffalo. My whole family's still there uh, pretty much with you know, one or two exceptions, but my brothers are there, my parents are there, and I've been writing basically my whole life since I was in sixth grade, uh, got really interested in nonfiction as an adult, and have a, did the Columbia Writing Program at Columbia University in creative nonfiction. So that's sort of my background, and then I've, I've been reporting for years and freelancing for uh, several years and mostly writing about politics. Okay, okay. And uh, what spurred your interest in writing about politics opposed to uh, other topics? Uh, that's a good question. I guess I feel like I come from a family of activists. My um, parents are pretty politically involved, and so are some of my aunts and uncles. Uh, come from a labor family. My grandfather was a, a labor lawyer in Buffalo, New York. And so I've always had a real strong interest in organized labor and in progressive politics more generally. Okay. So with your book, a big question that I have is you're talking about the, uh, you mentioned AOC and also, um, could you give us some, some of the names of, of some of the lesser known people who you were interviewing for the book? Sure. Um, I think one of my favorite interviews I did with, was with a woman named Sadiqa Reynolds, who was then running the Louisville Urban League in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, she's no, she stepped down, I think, earlier this year. But that was a very interesting person to have met. Um, there were, I also spoke with a number of women from Dream Defenders in Miami, Florida, which is a, a Black-led radical organization. They're socialists. They are, um, they occupied the Capitol in, I want to say either 2013 or 2014, uh, uh, in response to, to Trayvon Martin's um, shooting. And they are doing some really, really important work in Miami. And Sadiqa Reynolds was doing some really important work in Louisville. And those are just parts of the country that I feel like we don't hear as much about. So Absolutely. it was really important to me not just to get diverse voices, but to get um, diverse geographical representation in the book. So um, from a journalist standpoint, was it hard to get access to all these individuals? Did you have to have to jump through a lot of hoops and rings? And did you have to sign out waivers and all of that stuff before you, you know? Um, you know, it, pe people were very generous with me. I, uh, I think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was the hardest person to actually sit down with because she is a, is a pretty big deal. <laughs> so it took a little more hoop jumping to get access to her. Mm -hmm. I think these other folks, because they're lesser known, uh, you know, it wasn't 
quite as many layers between them and me, but they were, I really appreciated how generous they were with their time. And a lot of people trusted me in a way that I was, I was quite touched by. Great. Um, I'm sure, uh, um, Alexandria Arcaso, she had so many gatekeepers. It's like probably, geez, how do I get a hold to this person? <laughs> not, you know, not when I very first met her because I first met her before she won the election and that was a little easier. But uh, certainly as soon as she won that race, she, she got a lot less accessible. <laughs> okay. Uh, one more question and then I'm going to give it to my um, co-host. Um, so if we lose, if they lose the house in November, which is projected mm -hmm. to be true, um, where do you see the uh, Marjorie Taylor Greens uh, going and what type of power will they have? And, you know, um, how, uh, what's the question I'm going to say? Uh, how big of a setback the uh, modest gains we have made, how big of a setback will it be if she really has her way? Um, I, I think it'll be a tremendous setback. I, I do think that, you know, we always focus so much on electoral politics. My book is uh, a lot about electoral politics, but I think it's really important to think about people and movements and how even if the Republicans, um, you know, take control of the House and the Senate, you know, that will be bad. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Those would be pretty dark days. But Absolutely. I think that, you know, more important even than the people who hold those seats are people organizing in the streets. I mean, we really saw that in 2020, uh, millions and millions of people in the streets. And that did have an impact on our politics. Um, we have to be strategic about it. We have to learn how to wield some skills that we haven't been using for a long time and but I, I i think there are opportunities there so i don't think we don't need to despair but it it it's not going to be good if um if they lose the house one other thing and i think my colleague wants me to ask this question um hijacking the mic right exactly never met a mic i didn't like Rina. so um what i think is one thing i kind of um appreciate in the republicans in their agenda is they will try to win at all costs, and they don't mind a good fight. Sometimes I think we as Democrats, we're just too doggone soft. You know, sometimes you don't go to a, um, a gunfight with a slingshot, you know, and, 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 yeah. and, and our narratives, and we keep thinking that one day they're going to wake up and play fair, but they don't. And when we realize that, maybe then and only then, Will we begin to level the playing field? Can you speak to that, please? Yeah, well, I, I think a lot of the people I spoke to for my book would agree with you. And, you know, many of them are not uh, people who would call themselves Democrats, or at least not first and foremost. I, I think that they, many of them would vote Democratic, but they don't identify with the party in part because they don't think the party has uh, really represented them or been fighting forcefully enough. I just so, told my colleague that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. so what is it about this movement? This is the first rise of the major left wing uh, since the 60s. And um, so why this movement now? And can we sustain it and not burn out and, and keep momentum in this system that uh, is 
rigged and we only have about two minutes left. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I hope that we can. I think that one thing I learned from writing the book is that this new left is is a lot more organized in certain ways than the old left and and is learning how to use new tools to organize, right? There, We have the internet now. There are all kinds of new technologies that we have. And I think that uh, people are really getting serious in a way that they hadn't been on the left in a long time. And that's what the book is about, that we do see these new organizations and a new strength. So how sometimes it feels like a little bit defeating with the system that is bipartisan only with two party system what are some ways that what are some ways that keep you hopeful as uh as you're doing this research i i think talking to people who are a lot younger than i am keeps me keeps me pretty um hopeful because they are you know listen they they're fighting because they have to fight you know they are in the middle of climate catastrophe they've lived through two global recessions two two iterations of Black Lives Matter. And I think that is has woken a lot of people up and gotten them energized, not just to vote, but to really organize in a serious way um, and build organizations that are trying to take some take power back. And I think that is uh, that's what's hopeful to me. It's that it's not that we're going to get really change the voting system overnight or change our electoral system, but it's that people are getting serious about strategy and skill building and actually learning how to do politics. Or you said the key word, Rena, power. It's all about power. That's why they will look the other way and hold their nose, because this is about power, plain and simple. And just quickly, so on Saturday, James, you're talking at the James Connolly Social Club on October 22nd. Um, just quickly to end us out, how important are these small local grassroots movements? Um, they're really important. I think actually that local change is one of, is really where it's at and building organizations in your neighborhood and your city, working on state level races, in fact, is, is much more important now, even than anything at the federal level. Thank you so much, Raina Lipsitz, for joining us about your book, The Rise of a New Left, How Young Radicals Are Shaping the Future of Young Politics. And uh, can I also say, and the rise of the bills. Right, Raina? Go bills. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Go bills. <laughs> All right. And that's our show for tonight. We hope you've enjoyed the episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm your host, H. Bosch, Jr., and I'm Sina Bazilahiki, and we want to thank all the volunteers who made this episode today possible. Volunteer contributors to today were Mark Dunley, Willie Terry, H. Bosch Jr., Andrea Cunliffe, and many more behind the scenes. And listen, please understand this. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, Media Sanctuary. Or send us an email to hmm at themediasanctuary.org. We appreciate you for tuning in. And until next time, folks.